It was Jesus who said, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. It is a very formidable catalogue. Yet none of us can deny the truth of the matter. The newspapers testify daily that these things are the fruits of the natural mind and heart. And the scriptures testify also. In every one of the portions which we are allotted for today's reading, evidence is plainly forthcoming that these things do indeed proceed out of the heart of natural man. Yet even with these examples, there are also the examples of the thoughts and deeds of those whose heart is set on God. We turn to the first book of Kings, chapter 1, and we read at verse 5, Then Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen, and fifty men to run before him. What prompted this? What was it that caused Adonijah to say, I will be king? Pride. He had said, as we gather from the record, I am a goodly man. I am fitted to be on the throne in place of my father. We have also here recorded the position in the line of David's wife, sorry, David's sons, which Adonijah filled. He was the fourth son of David. The first son of David, Amnon, had been slain by Absalom. Absalom, in his turn, had been slain by Joab. Of Chiliab, we have nothing recorded. Whether he was alive at this time, we cannot say. Whether there was in him any disability which made him unfitted as a possible successor, we cannot say. But Adonijah was not deterred by any scruples. He said, I will be king. And he proceeded to win over to himself Joab and the king's sons. What prompted it? Pride. When we consider it, how much of the world's evils are the result of pride? The last war had its roots in the pride of one man who said, I will be king. It is not to be wondered at then that God says he hates it. It is among the seven things which are an abomination of the abomination to the Lord. The psalmist was inspired to write, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things. It's not difficult to see why. Pride is an exaltation of the flesh. 
I suppose that if we examine our hearts, there are few of us who are free in some measure and in some way from pride. It may be that the way is not always apparent. It may not be that we show it in our actions or even in our words. But it may be that we have pride in our thoughts of our own hearts. The thought, for example, that is rebellious against the commandments of God. The thought of the heart which turns aside the behests of God, which says, I will not submit myself to this command and this behest. But God has said, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this Adonijah was not only proud, but he was also foolish. His rebellion was not followed by the usual consequence of rebellion in those days. As a rule, the one that rebelled, if he were unsuccessful, paid with his life. But in this particular case, you will remember that it is recorded in chapter 1, verse 52, that Solomon said of him, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. The escape of Adonijah had taught him nothing, because after a very short time we see him again seeking by another means the supremacy. And he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about, and is become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And he proceeds to ask a petition. Now I ask one petition of thee, deny me not. Speak, I pray thee, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say thee nay, that he give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. Now this was tantamount to claiming the kingdom. You will remember that Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, charged Abner with the same fault when he took Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, to wife. And you will remember that Ahithophel counselled Absalom to take David's concubines. Such an act confirming that the king was no longer strong enough to protect them and that he had been deposed by one stronger than himself. And so this was really the claim of Adonijah, a claim to the kingship. This foolishness was so reckoned by Solomon, and it brought about his destruction. Adonijah was doubly foolish. He had not asked this in ignorance, but he had asked knowing that the kingdom had been given to his brother and therefore that he was acting against God's appointment. Now when Jesus says that out of the heart proceeds foolishness, the word which he uses is only used once. And it really means senselessness. 
How senseless to go against God's appointments. How futile to fight against God. Paul says, They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. And it is still possible to kick against the pricks. It is still possible to be wayward. We know in our hearts, through the word, what God would have us do. If then we seek another course, if we try to engineer another course, we are indeed senseless, being foolish. We're resisting God's appointments. God's appointments will stand, whatever we may do to try and avoid them. They will not fail. It is we who will fail, as Adonijah failed. For you will remember that Adonijah was destroyed, and David's tenth son, Solomon, sat upon the throne of the Lord in Jerusalem and prospered. Now we pass from these events in the reign of the second king of Israel, for it was in the lifetime of David. It was part of that tribulation which came upon him because of his sin. To the events recorded for us concerning the very last king of Judah. We pass over the whole span of the kingdom and we come to that time when Judah is hardly beset by reason of the inroads of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, upon the neighbouring countries. Indeed, the threat of invasion was so great that a number of the surrounding nations had gathered themselves together and had come to Jerusalem in order that they might make a pact against the king. So it was a time of great distress. Messengers from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre and Sidon had gathered themselves together and Jeremiah had been commanded to make yokes of wood and not only to make them, but to send them, by these very messengers, back to their countries, as a sign that the pact would fail, and that Nebuchadnezzar would be successful, and that notwithstanding all the words which the wise men, and the prophets, and the diviners of these several kingdoms should say, God's word would nevertheless come to pass. Let us read from Jeremiah 27, Verse 9, yesterday's reading. Hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you, to remove you far from your land. The same warning was uttered to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. I spake also to Zedekiah king of Judah according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. In addition to this, Jeremiah himself wore a yoke. He wore it upon his neck as a sign. Now this is the setting of the particular incident recorded in chapter 28 which occurred in the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign. you remember what we read concerning Hananiah, the son of a prophet, who spoke to Jeremiah and the priests and the people in the temple. And this is what he said. 
Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two four years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now there in the sight of all was Jeremiah with a yoke upon his neck, a sign that they would come under the yoke of the king of Babylon. And here was Hananiah proclaiming the opposite, maintaining too that he spoke according to the word of the Lord. Nay, more, let us read what he says in verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and brake it. And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Yes, we have no record of any answer that the prophet Jeremiah made. The way of the prophet was hard indeed. No wonder his face had to be as brass toward this people. He knew his testimony was true. And yet, for the moment, he could say no more, and he had to suffer the double indignity of being accused as a prophet of falsehood and of wearing a sign which was false. We know the sequel. God vindicated Jeremiah and God proclaimed the death of Hananiah. Here is the point of these things. Why did Hananiah lie before the priests, before all the people, and before God? Why does anyone lie? Sometimes it is because of a little vain glory. We exaggerate our actions upon a certain occasion. We exaggerate, exaggerate the part we played in a certain situation. In other words, we advertise ourselves by exaggeration. And all exaggeration is falsehood. It is not the truth. Sometimes men lie because of fear. Even the disciple of Jesus said, I know him not. Because of fear. And have we never been afraid to acknowledge Christ? Sometimes the lie is for gain, advancement of position and prestige. This was probably the motive of Hananiah. Was he not the son of a prophet? Whatever is the cause of the lying, it is sin. It is part of that deceit which comes from the heart of man, the heart of the natural man, and therefore as much like pride and foolishness. It comes under the severest condemnation. Lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord. The Apostle Paul had to warn the Ephesians about this very thing. He spoke to them, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak truth, 
every man with his neighbour. For we are members one of another. That is it. We are members one of another as one family. How could we deceive and be untruthful the one to the other? Now again we pass over from the days of the last king of Judah, those days when the kingdom was to be overturned, when indeed the yoke of Babylon was placed upon their necks for 70 years, to that day when he was manifested to whom the kingdom was eventually to come. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is and I will give it him. So we come to the time when Jesus was also confronted by these evils which proceed from the heart of man. The chapter we have read, Mark chapter 2, brings before us many instances of this working of the natural mind. Before him he had those who were outwardly righteous, and yet their hearts were not right. We read, for example, that there came to him the scribes. Who were the scribes? They were those who not only transcribed the scriptures, but in the time of Christ were considered to be interpreters also. These should have known when they saw the miracles Jesus performed in their midst, that this was one of the one of whom the prophets spoke, that this was the one who should open the prison of those who were bound. And yet, when this miracle of healing was done, when the impotent man was let down in their midst, and Christ told him to get up, to take up his bed and walk, they did not give praise and thanks to God, because the great physician was among them, on the contrary, they cavilled at Christ's words. They reasoned within themselves. Yes, there was nothing outwardly to show their disapprobation of Christ. They reasoned within themselves. Verse 8. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Did not Jesus say that from the heart proceed evil thoughts, thoughts of jealousy, thoughts of envy and meanness of spirit? We all fail, we have to acknowledge it. And how often sometimes this meanness of spirit, these thoughts of envy and of jealousy, colour our words and the deeds of others. How often it is the cause of difficulties and strifes. Oh, that we could cast out this meanness of spirit. Then the Pharisees complained that the disciples of Jesus fasted not. Now, Jesus said nothing against fasting. Indeed, he gave instructions how the disciples should fast. This is very interesting and very important. He said, when they fasted, they were to fast in secret, to anoint their head, wash their face, so that they should not appear unto men as if they were fasting. So fasting was not an occasion of display. and There was no occasion of display in almsgiving, in praying, in abstinence, 
or in feasting, all our acts of worship should be marked with the utmost simplicity and the utmost sincerity. We must not let the heart of man come into it. Our contact with the world and our contesting with the alien must not be occasions of display. It is with meekness that we present these things before those who would ask of us a reason for the belief that is within us. Finally, Christ comes into conflict with the Pharisees over the plucking of corn by the disciples, rubbing it in their hands and eating it. It was obvious that their complaint concerning this act was a mere triviality, a mere technicality, a mere fault-finding. Was the law for man or man for the law? Was the Sabbath for man or was man for the Sabbath? There is no doubt of the answer. These things were for man. The Sabbath, that is, the cessation or rest, was for man. And we do indeed know how this weekly day of rest was a wonderful provision which was made by God. But God has designed that a still greater provision shall be made for man. We are reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in writing to the Hebrews, where he speaks of a keeping of a Sabbath. There remaineth therefore a keeping of the Sabbath for the people of God. He's not referring there, sorry, he is referring there not to this weekly rest, but to the millennial Sabbath, when the people of God should rest from their present labours. And who is Lord of this? Who is to be Lord of this Sabbath or rest? The very one whom the Pharisees were criticising, whom the scribes chided, the one whom they rejected, the one whom we have met to remember. It was a part of that great tribulation which he had to bear that he was surrounded by so many who showed this evidence of the hardness of their hearts. He sighed deeply in his spirit when he looked around and perceived the hardness of their heart. It must have been a great tribulation to him then to have seen the manifestations of the wickedness of the heart of man, pride, foolishness, lying and evil thoughts. And here is the point. If these manifestations grieved him then, will not the same manifestations in us today also grieve him? Let us strive, therefore, to put down the flesh with its promptings and its thoughts. We can never lay down our sword against these things, remembering the cry of the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am! Do not let us think at any time that we are not capable of these things, being in the flesh. The capability is there, and sometimes even more than we realise. Let us labour then to walk, so that we may enter into that rest. For, says Paul, a promise being left us of entering into his rest, let none of us seem to come short of it.
If we fail not, then we shall sit with Jesus at his table in the kingdom. For the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. 